Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Christian Sager. So, Robert, you just got back from a trip to New York City. Uh, yeah, I uh, checked out the uh, World Science Festival uh, this year. Uh, I've checked it out uh, a couple times in previous years, and it's always it's always a blast. There are always a, some wonderful talks, wonderful panels, uh, as well as things like street festivals with lots of um, you know stuff for kids. Yeah, um, various interactive events. Uh, but the they have like a Neil deGrasse Tyson dunking pool. No, <laughs> I think he has he has uh, participated in the in the past, and yeah. uh, and I think sometimes shows up in the audience if uh, the talk is. Oh, that's kind of cool. Uh, something that interests him. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I took in several different uh, talks. Uh, came back, you know, with a lot of ideas right. either in my head or in my notebook for the show. And uh, thought that today we could jump in and talk about um, one of the topics that uh, that was covered, and that is the, the realm of synthetic biology. Yeah, and so we should clarify what synthetic biology means, because when you first said it to me, I thought, oh, we're going to talk about androids, or like <laughs> yeah. Vision from the Avengers, right? He's a synthetic human being, right? That's synthetic biology. Sure, yeah. But like what we're talking about here is something very specific. Genetic engineering, right? Yeah. So it. I mean, I have to admit too. When you when I hear synthetic biology, I think of the um, uh, uh, the uh, the synthetic uh, humanoids from the Alien series. Yeah, you know, with, their, with their white blood uh, splurting all over the place. That sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, Lance Henriksen. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, and uh, what was the one in the first one? Peter Holm or uh, sorry, Ian Holm. Yeah, Ian Holm. Yeah, they played the the villainous one. Uh, so yeah, that's the kind of stuff. That may come to mind, and we'll also get into some of the other um, sort of surface-level interpretations of what's going on. But ultimately, this episode is about demystifying the topic just a little bit, like getting down to the to the basic nuts and bolts of what is up happening when yeah. we create synthetic biology, when we genetically engineer an organism, and then also discuss some of the possibilities in the in the you know some very fascinating near future possibilities for synthetic biology as well as some of the amazing things we're already doing that mm-hmm. uh, that maybe you just haven't heard about because they're just they're maybe they're too everyday or they are uh, you know, they're, they're not as sexy just on the surface of things. Yeah, absolutely. And I can already hear alarm bells ringing in our listeners' ears going, oh, GMOs, are, uh, genetically modified organisms. They're going to talk about this. In fact, after we did the uh, w- what we called the organic panic episode, the mm-hmm. organic foods episode, a lot of people wrote into us and said, you've got to do GMOs. I can't believe you didn't talk about GMOs during this. It's something that's it's a topic that's hot on people's right. minds, right, especially science-oriented listeners. Um this is not going to be directly about GMOs, but obviously we're going to be touching on that here and there. And genetically modified food. But this is more, I would call this more of like an o- overview of like how the science actually works on it more than a like, this is why it's so bad for you. Right. This is why it's not bad for you. Right. Like that, that expectation that we've, I think that like news media has sort of, uh, taught us to to mm-hmm. expect from anything that has the word GMO on it in a headline. Yeah, so hopefully, even though we're not going to discuss GMO a lot, this this podcast episode will give you some 
uh, some material, some food for yeah. thought that'll help you, uh, you know, figure out exactly yeah, where you stand on the topic. You can go forward and kind of dig around and do your own homework based on the stuff that we present to you today. Uh, so this presumably came out of a panel that you went to, right? So tell me about the panel. All right, yeah. So or the, tell us. <laughs> well, the panel was, uh, the, this particular uh, discussion was titled, It's Alive, But Is It Life, Synthetic Biology and the Future of Creation? Uh, which is a wonderful, wonderful title. Yeah. Uh, it was moderated by Robert Krulwich of Radiolab. Oh, okay, cool. And the participants, if if you're familiar with any of these individuals, uh, I mean, if you've read about synthetic biology at all, some of these names have come up. Uh, geneticist George Church, uh, synthetic biologist Drew Indy, technologist Tom Knight, and synthetic biologist Pamela Silver. Now, from the research that we did today, George Church is a big name in he, this field. He is a huge name, yeah. 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 So, so he that's cool that he was actually there to talk and defend his ideas. Yeah, now, granted... <laughs> the defending is a yeah. ends up being kind of a strong word because some of my favorite world science festival panels have involved uh, kind of incendiary figures yeah. that are kind of that you know they they don't get into all out fights but they get into sort of heated. Uh, uh, academic discussions. Yeah, science war. Yeah, a little bit of science war, or even like <laughs> science versus humanities war. Okay, like that's sure. the stuff uh, I I often find most engaging. Yeah, here you had four individuals who are all more or less on the same page. Oh, okay. There are certain disagreements that they seem to have. Yeah, but then given their closeness, they were not all that. Um, uh, ready to, you know, engage in uh, yeah. some sort of uh, discussion about those disagreements. Well, there's also sort of a level of professionalism that you yeah. should bring to public appearances like that, especially if you're debating big ideas like this. But from what I've read about George Church, apparently there is a side to the science community that just basically ostracizes him. And like, like uh, he's had events, like press events before where he wanted to talk about ideas that he had or work he was doing and people in the community just were like, nope, like we don't want to have anything to do with this because we think he's unethical or something like that. And then he sort of later clarifies and is like, whoa, you guys are taking this too far. Like I'm, so we'll, we'll get into that throughout the episode, but he, he's a controversial figure. Uh, yeah, yeah, to, to, to a seemingly to a mild degree. Yeah. Like, <laughs> probably in a niche community, too. Yeah. It's not like he walks down the street and people are throwing, uh, tomatoes at him. Right. I mean, he's certainly not any kind of a fringe scientist or yeah. anything of that, uh, nature. Uh, but, you know, he's, he's engaged in work that deals with, uh, genetics and deals with the human genome. And that can be a hot button issue. Yeah. Um, you know, if for no other reason, because we have the word human in there. Uh, and he's actually campaigned against using, like, human in the title for things of yeah. this nature. And his point is that, you know, it, it's not all directly related to the human genome. Absolutely. There's a lot of genomes that are being uh, discussed and tinkered with here. And you kind of... You, you risk weighting the, uh, uh, the the work down by shackling it to all the complexities and the and the the potential uh, you know hot button issues surrounding uh, human genetics. There are many of those, and we'll we're, we're going to sort of go in and out of those as we cover the basics here. So let's let's start by just answering a very basic: What is genetic engineering? We've all heard that, right? But what does that actually mean? Genetic modification or genetic engineering, this just means inserting genes from one species into another to give that organism new abilities or characteristics. It's it's taking the blueprint, essentially, for one yeah. organism 
and uh, cutting and pasting a little bit from another. Yeah, I like to think about it after reading this stuff as giving them superpowers, but they're like really kind of lame superpowers, right? <laughs> like uh, we're talking about in the case of bacteria, you go into the extra rings of DNA around them, which are called plasmids, and this bacteria... This gives the bacteria their extra abilities, right? Which I I refer to as mutant powers. Let's think of them as like X Men. Uh, so, so like maybe you've got a particular bacteria that's immune to antibiotics, and that's its superpower. Or maybe it can make a toxin, right? Right. So we are altering those plasmids so that they have different powers, right? So rather than the uh, having a bacteria that can uh, be resistant to antibiotics, maybe we're changing it so that it produces insulin. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you can also think of it in terms of uh, uh, it's like editing a paragraph in Word. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. you can take if you're given it. So you take a paragraph out of any classic uh, work in English literature. Right. Take a paragraph from it. You can take some words out of it. You can take a sentence out of it, uh, replace it with a sentence from another work. However, you're limited. It has to be has to be the same language for right. it to make sense. Yeah. Um, Certain passages are not going to work when just inserted into it. A certain amount of thought yeah. has to go into it. Essentially, it has to be closely related to the passage you took out. But you can still change, you can tweak, you can shift the meaning of that paragraph after you've done your little copy and paste exercise. Yeah, so genetic engineering is kind of like William S. Burroughs' cut-up method, right? Yeah, I And think so. sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. That is, that yeah. is very apt, as we'll, yeah. as we'll uh, get into. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. There's a lot of trial and error yeah. uh, at a, given our, our current state of genetic engineering. So then synthetic biology, which is what we're primarily talking about here, is sort of like the next step in this, right? The, right. The ne- what we're aiming for with the genetic engineering. Yeah, and th- this is essentially like successful syn- uh, synthetic biology via genetic engineering is to create that um, that that passage, that paragraph that after you've, you've tweaked it, it yeah. works in a new way that benefits us. So yeah. in short, we're talking about the design and construction of biological modules, biological systems, and biological machines for useful purposes. So we're tweaking genomes, tweaking genetic code to alter the biological results. Um, that might mean tweaking the immunity yeah. of, uh, of, of an, uh, ultimately even of an, if an individual, uh, be that an individual human in the, mm-hmm. the you know, in the, the, the future sense of the word or, uh, in a bacterium. Uh, it can also mean, uh, imbuing certain biological properties or altering the results of existing properties. And there are a number of reasons to do this and not all of which have anything to do with humans or human health or even, even food that we eat. Yeah. Uh, many are purely manufacturing, you know, and many are agricultural as well. Um, but we're we're often talking about genetically engineering bacteria to produce new products. Bacteria already produce products, but we can tweak them to make products that we want. Yeah, and so the benefit here is usually this is cheaper, right, and mm-hmm. maybe better for the environment, depending on what our, our our traditional method of producing these products is, right? Right. So. Uh, we'll talk about petroleum later, but like, uh, you've got an example here about rose oil, right? Yeah, this is one I had, I'd never heard of this one. Uh, and this uh, example was brought up by Tom Knight, um, on the panel who actually worked with this process. So this involves rose oil. 
Rose oil is an important essential oil in perfuming. But here's the thing. You have to process a lot of roses to extract it. Sure. And the process of extracting it involves some pretty terrible chemicals. And then mm. you have to remove the human allergen that's in there as well. Right. So it's costly. It's chemically a little bit gross. All of this so we can spray ourselves and smell like roses. Exactly. Mm. Um, but what if there was a better way, right? So Knight was contracted to engineer a yeast that produces rose oil. And did this by hitching the rose oil producing genes uh, from the rose to the yeast. In other words, genetically engineering a yeast making yeast into a rose oil making yeast. Yeah, and yeast seems to be a pretty much go to thing for scientists when we're talking about this genetic modification, right? Like especially yeah. like the insulin stuff we're going to talk about later and, and, and other things. Yeah, the, the the kind of road has been bacteria and then yeast. Yeah. And from that, from there, uh, you know, even more complicated organisms. Uh, but, uh, but this is, this thing with the rose oil is interesting. The rose scent is actually 200 different chemicals, it turns out. Wow. And different roses have different smells. So the process involves making individual chemicals that you then would mix together to get the desired smell. But the manufacturers here of those chemicals yeah. are the yeast. Interesting. Yeah. So I'm, I'm wondering if you can get like one batch of yeast and you altered multiple bacteria within the yeast potentially 200 mm-hmm. so that they're all producing the various chemicals. So it just pff, smells like roses. Huh? Who knows? Maybe, I mean, I'm yeah. sure somebody out there knows, but, but it's, this stuff is so complex. And I think this is one of those science issues that like we very easily gloss over when we're reading science news or listening to reports in the media, especially on GMOs, right? Like, right. Like knowing the actual process, like how we do it, how it works. I think, breaks down the mystery of it a little bit more so that we're able to think a little clearer about the ethics of it. Yeah, I mean, even for my own part, attending this panel kind of brought me up to speed on a lot of uh, the the techniques here, whereas in the past I've, I've really kind of retained this, like, childhood mad scientist yeah. understanding of it where I'm just like, oh, genetically engineered uh, organisms, I instantly think Brundle fly right. and don't explore it a whole lot more. Yeah, 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 yeah. I immediately go to like uh, the X-Files conspiracy to genetically modify human beings or so that yeah. like whatever, they're, they're susceptible to a disease that bees are going to sting us with or something, you know, like some kind of sci-fi right. mad science type thing. Yeah. Uh, and I think that, you know, for various reasons, like it's not I, I don't want to, like, dispel the notion that, like, there aren't unethical <laughs> yeah. occurrences of biomedical or not biomedical, but bioengineering. But, you know, it's important to keep it all in context. Right. So some of the basics of how we do it. Let's just, you know, boil this down. It's it's pretty interesting what we're already doing, what's already out there. Yeah. Um, and a lot of it revolves around these standard blocks or bio bricks of genetic information. Now, previously, the source material for these bio bricks, these blocks, was uh, the, uh, we got them from the smolts of spawning salmon. Huh. But that's this, fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I wonder I, why. I, I wonder why salmon. There must be something about them that make it particularly easy. Well, to I mean, it, you had a, a farming environment, so there were plenty of them. Yeah. And then the smolts are, you know, they're 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 new young salmon that are mm-hmm. in this uh, this stage of of rapid change. Yeah. But um, 
The problem here is that it meant that the pharmaceutical companies that were using the smolts, they were dependent on the salmon industry and their potential fluctuations in Mm -hmm. the salmon market. So they developed the means to create synthetic DNA from scratch to cut out the harvest entirely. Yeah, so they don't even have to use the natural DNA from these salmon anymore. They're just making it in a lab. Yeah, and we're already at the point where you can you can look up a genetic recipe on the internet. You can print it out. You can yeah. order the DNA you need to produce it, and then you, but then you have to move on to the tricky part of putting the DNA back into an organism and making it work. Yeah, and the, the process of assembling the DNA um, prior to this point, prior to the sort of you know the Frankenstein moment, the, the life moment, uh, it's actually it's actually a lot like a printing scenario. So if you have D, you have DNA in powder form, a machine spits the chemicals out in descending mm-hmm. order. And at this point, it's just, you know, unloving organic chemicals, uh, but it's the first step. Yeah, this is the, this is the sexy science news headline that we, at least we tend to see a lot lately, mm-hmm. right? Like that comes across our desk in a press release and is like screaming, please put me out there, talk about me, right? Which is like, can you believe it? Like we can print life. Ah, you know, this like Victor Frankenstein uh-huh. stuff that, you know, uh, seems to attract reader attention or fear. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you break it down, though, like the bacteria that we're talking about here, they contain a single chromosome. And this w- chromosome has all the information that they need to survive and reproduce. Now, I want to go back to what I said before. Around that, there's the extra rings of DNA called the plasmids. Those are the things that we're genetically altering. Uh but we can't just make it do anything, right? It's not like you can take yeast and, like, turn it into, I don't know, like, titanium, right? Yeah, like, again, think back to that analogy of taking a paragraph, say, out of Moby Dick. Yeah. You can tweak it a lot, but it, but if you tweak how much can you tweak it to make it not about whaling and make it about, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, making love on a space station? Exactly, yeah. And so uh, one thing we're going to bring up and, and is, again, like, uh, going to be like a ding, 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 like danger term for listeners mm-hmm. is E. coli is used a lot in this process. Uh, and, for instance, E. coli can only be used to make proteins. So there's a limit to what we can do with this. It's not like uh, we found the philosopher's stone and we have the alchemy to just change one substance into another, right? Any, any old substance. Right. And there's four categories that we use for applications with this. There's medical, energy, food, and environmental. Now, food is the one that people usually get pretty worked up about, but also the one that people, uh, are particularly nervous about, uh, at least in the sort of sci-fi mad scientist sense, is the human genome. Yes. Wow, and we're talking about when we're talking about insulin, we're talking about something that saves people's lives. Yeah, and uh, you know, and this is actually insulin's a big deal. And to to lay out just how we're using the technology, uh, the first biosynthetic insulin actually went on sale in 1982. Wow, and then yeah, and today about 70 percent of the insulin sold worldwide is produced by engineered organisms, either E. coli or yeast, and it's just as safe, uh, but cheaper to make. As uh, as animal derived yeah. insulin, and it doesn't depend on cows or pigs. So I don't have experience with insulin, but I have a friend who's uh, severely diabetic and has to, you know, uses insulin constantly. Mm-hmm. So you diabetics out there, I'm curious if this is something when you buy your insulin, if you're aware of, if you're buying synthetic, like, do they ask you, do you want synthetic or do you want animal based, or if it's just you don't really have a choice in the matter, you just get whatever they give you at the pharmacy. Well, I would assume that, I mean, certainly 
I, I know a lot of people would, would like, who have to take insulin would want to make that, uh, like an ethical choice. Yeah. Like, right. choose not to have pigs involved. So, for instance, uh, my friend is, is actually a vegetarian, mm-hmm. the one who is diabetic as well. Yeah. So, yeah. he probably wouldn't want that. But at 70%, um, it, it seems that it's, it's pretty much saturated the market. Yeah. Uh, certainly here in, in the West. So, from there, where do we go from insulin? Well, let's talk about just one human chromosome, chromosome 11. All right, this uh, involves 135 million base parts. Oof. So you're looking at a price tag of, uh, again, estimated $4,050,000. Oh, that's whatever. Yeah, we've got that. The, the show makes that in like an episode, <laughs> so we're fine. Uh, but yeah, we are actually paid in, uh, in base we're genetic only, DNA. Yeah, parts, it's, yeah. It, the true, true story, we're <laughs> only paid in DNA. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So from here, what have you wanted? What have you wanted to do? The, like the, the big step, the Frankenstein yeah. step. What have you wanted to create a synthetic human genome? We would be talking, hypothetically, we'd be talking about spending $90 million for 3 billion base parts. So that's how complex the human genome is mm-hmm. when we take this up to the full scale. Now keep in mind, this sounds like science fiction, right? But, I also want to put a pin on this. Remember that the U.S. government has spent around $430 million already on researching this kind of synthetic biology just since 2005. The U.K. has invested another $160 million. So this is something that's actively being worked on and our money is being spent on it in piles. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also... Less than 5% of that money has been spent to explore, quote, the ethical, legal, and social implications. So, okay, here we're like, we're bleeding in a little bit into that ethical area, right? That, mm-hmm. well, the U.S. government, yeah, the, a little bit of that money is, well, is this okay, right? Like, uh, <laughs> do you remember, this is like, this always stands out in my head, and I might have brought it up in the podcast before, but like, it, it, clearly it must have been over a decade ago. Uh, during one of George W. Bush's State of the Unions, he mentioned, uh, like biomedical engineering as being a bad thing and animal human hybrids. And in fact, you know what, where it was? I think we talked about, Joe and I talked about it on the X-Files episode. Oh yeah, I do remember this. It, yeah, uh, like it was a, a ban on animal human hybrids. Yeah, yeah, and at the time I was like, wait, is that a, that's a thing we need to be worried about? Like w- werewolves? Like what do we, <laughs> And, and now it's like, well, okay, like now I think I see this. It's like he's looking at a line item somewhere in a daily report and it's about this 5% about the ethical nature of whatever they're doing here, right? And mm-hmm. what I don't know that it was necessarily in this particular field, but you know, some other government research that involved animal human genetics. Well, this also, this is, of course, this is not an area I've really researched yet, but, um, how much of any given endeavor's budget needs to be applied to moral ethics. and ethics concerns? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't mean to to you know underscore the importance of it. Right. Clearly, yeah. I mean that was something that came up in this talk a lot, and there are discussions, and there are a lot of uh, procedures that are in place to safeguard what they're doing yeah. and to keep uh, ethics in mind. But how much does that end up costing? Like it, yeah. it seems like it might be a little insane to say, oh, if you're going to spend $2 million on this bit of research, spend half of it or even spend a fourth of it right. on ethical concerns. Yeah, is there some like like base formula that they teach you in science school that's yeah. like for every laboratory experiment you do, uh, 20% of the time has to be spent on the ethical nature of this <laughs> or something. Yeah, I mean, I think it's only coming up here because of 
what we're talking about because it's genetic engineering. I mean, that being said, certainly history has shown us that that scientific and, and technological advancements often uh, outpace our ability to cope with the um, with with the ramifications on yeah. our life and our and uh, and our on our laws and sometimes on our ethics. And so, also, having read you and I both, having read many a science fiction horror story uh, where something goes horribly wrong in a laboratory accident, <laughs> uh, yeah, of course, like I can I can see why the the fear is there, right? Yeah, yeah you don't see Jurassic Park would have been a very different novel had nothing gone wrong. Exactly. All right, so you're probably wondering, okay, what now? If you, you build this thing, you build this uh, this synthetic uh, bit of uh, information, how do you bring it to life? How do you uh, how do you summon the lightning and get everything crackling? Well, all right, this is how it goes down, and it it may sound super simple, and this is this is the overview, but it also I think demystifies what's going on here. So you have the segment you want, you simply scoop out the old segment in a living cell, and you place in the new one. Sounds pretty good, right? Yeah. It's um yeah. This was described it's like uh, a watermelon baller. Yeah. And this is this was actually <laughs> described by some of the uh, the experts on this panel as being a kind of uh, essentially learning by disassembly and reassembly. Mm-hmm. It's it's like you know nothing about a car, you bring the car in, you take parts out, take the engine apart, try and put it back together. Yeah. And see if it works. Yeah, and maybe you like maybe you put in like a nitrous attachment, like in those Fast and the Furious movies. Yeah, and and, and that makes the car faster. Yeah, in a way, uh, genetic engineering, creating synthetic organisms, is kind of like if if you or I, yeah. uh, not being car people, were to try and install <laughs> oh. a nitrous. Uh, oh know. yeah, it's just as foreign to me. I, yeah, I, I think it would be interesting. You know, it'd be fascinating is to get Scott from Car Stuff, our our, our sister show here about mm-hmm. uh, automobiles, and he knows a ton about cars. Get him to sit down with a genetic engineer and have the two of them sort of compare and contrast. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the um, with, with the difference being that Scott may ultimately, ultimately, I, I believe he probably knows how a car works. Yeah. And one yeah. thing that was pointed out, um, I believe, by uh, Tom Knight was that we don't necessarily understand how the organism that we're tinkering with works in the broad sense. Again, yeah. we are learning about it through disassembly and reassembly. But um, essentially what happens is you you hook this stuff into the cell and then it's just you see what happens. You essentially try and start the car, except you don't there's no lightning involved. There's no you know technique to say, ah, come to life. It's more like watching and seeing if the cell dies. If it dies then it failed. If it, uh, but if it uh, remains alive, and then certainly if it reproduces, if the cell splits, yeah. etc., then you have successfully booted up the cell, and that's the terminology they use. Yeah, they use a up. lot of, um, and and rightfully so, as we're going to discuss. They use a lot of the same language that we use to describe uh, data in technology. Yeah, and, and that makes sense because uh, it's there are a lot of different disciplines involved here. And uh, in fact, uh, Tom Knight, uh, the technologist that I uh, I mentioned before, he got involved in uh, synthetic biology. He was uh, an electrical engineer at MIT. So, ah, okay. So, you know, okay. He may be the one that's bringing a lot of this language in, but yeah. certainly. You know, we have to have a metaphor to understand what we're doing, and oftentimes programming is is an is an easy go to. Yeah, absolutely. Which brings us to all right. So there is this crazy experiment. Uh, Craig Venter, I believe, is the one behind this, right? And yes. this is like one of the primary ones. So why don't you throw this out at the audience? 
Yeah, this was an uh, this was an important first. So May 2010, uh, Craig Venter's team became the first to su- successfully create what was then described as synthetic life by synthesizing a very long DNA molecule containing an entire bacterium genome and entered and then introducing this into another cell. And he, he there's a lot of crazy fun details yeah. here. He seems like qu- quite a character. He actually added his own name. Uh, to the bacteria genome. Like, this is like, in there. this is like those Indochino jackets that, that we, uh, have talked about on the show before. You can get like your name embroidered on the inside. Yeah. Yeah. He just got it embroidered on the genome. Yeah. He did. And then <laughs> not to, not to be undone. Uh, he also later wrote a book in, in English. Uh, I believe you have the title of this book here in your notes. Uh, I don't have the title actually, but I have some more information about it. It's a, it's a book. That uh, was written by George Church and Ed Regis about synthetic biology. It's fifty-three thousand words, as well as eleven images and a bonus computer program, all of which were encoded onto the strands of DNA. So you can see now why the apt metaphor language for using data storage and data technology mm-hmm. uh, l- language works here. The crazy thing too is by by encoding that in genetics. He essentially published the thing 70 billion times. Yeah. And making it the most widely published book in human history. Yeah. Outpacing the Bible, Moby Dick, whatever you want to throw into, uh, into the race. He just went ahead and wiped it out. Uh, and all in the area about the size of uh, a fingernail. Yeah. And it's like, um, like I'm imagining that you've got some bioorganic David Cronenberg, uh, smartphone in the future that you're able to slip the DNA vial into and it pulls up like a Kindle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're able to read the book off the Kindle. Here's the crazy thing about this. And this is another one of those like boom headlines. Like I, I remember in, in our pitch meetings a couple of weeks ago, somebody brought this up as like a story. DNA is so dense that one gram of DNA can theoretically store 455 billion gigabytes of data. So think about this. Four grams, just four little grams of DNA could hold every piece of data the world produces in a year. Huh. So uh, it, it lasts longer than your phone or your computer does, too. It's it lasts for 3.5 billion years. So if we can figure this out, this is like an entirely new way to transmit information and to store information, right? Like we've talked before about ways to store information as if society collapses, right? Like, mm-hmm. like data storage might not work. Books would get burned or books might uh, be waterlogged or something like that. And like one of the, I, th- I think if I remember correctly, like one of the best ways to do it is to like currently like etch uh, information into like these titanium, like super dense, super strong metal uh, cubes. Uh-huh. But like with this DNA thing, that wouldn't even be necessary. Uh, but here's the thing. It's, Copying DNA, copying the data onto the DNA is currently like very time consuming, prohibitively so. And DNA storage technology, it still though, it's improving at a pretty fast rate. So there's a lot of interesting possibilities for our future. Like I said, maybe we'll have, you know, some David Cronenberg style like existence smartphones or whatever that will be, they'll be half a uh, iPhone, half I don't know, like little biological globule thing that we stick <laughs> DNA vials into. Not to jump ahead to, to sci-fi considerations just yet, but uh, in, in all of these various scenarios where ancient um, 
you know, astronauts or some sort of super advanced race creates life on Earth. Yeah. Um, be it a Star Trek or a Prometheus type of situation. Um, I wonder, has it ever been explored? And surely it has. Whatever all the genetic uh, information on Earth is just uh, an external hard drive for yeah. some race. And maybe yeah. they're not even storing useful stuff. Maybe they're just putting, like, bootleg movies. <laughs> and yeah, right. <laughs> well, that's one of the things that I was thinking about, right, is, like, theoretically, you could do this to the DNA that exists in a human being, right? And, I mean, if it's just one strand of DNA, I don't know. How much havoc can that wreck? Yeah, how, how, how much information can you code into a paragraph from Moby Dick? Without <laughs> right. without destroying its ability to function as a paragraph in the narrative. Absolutely, yeah. But of course, we're a long ways away from that. Right now, synthesizing DNA is a difficult and error-prone endeavor. Yeah, uh, so there's this pretty in-depth, long-form article in the New York Times that came out, let's see, like a couple weeks ago, actually. Yeah, there's been a lot of really cool recent reporting on this. Uh, I mean, this is one of those episodes we probably will not run a repeat off because right. everything will be different It'll in change. six months. Yeah. Uh, and it's, I, I just want to dive in and out of it a little bit because it provides some more basic information, especially in respect to the whole ge- human genome thing. So this ability that we're talking about of using chemicals to manufacture human chromosomes, it's fascinating, but... It's got people pretty ethically nervous, right? Uh, because we could end up creating human beings without biological parents. That's the thing that people get really twitchy about, right? Is like, we've mapped the human genome. What if we write the human genome? What does that mean? You know, like, uh, these, these, I'm, th- I'm thinking of like sci-fi scenarios, like, mm-hmm. uh, replicants from Blade Runner or something like that. Yeah. So people are terrified of this happening. So we're talking about following up on that work that the Human Genome Project did, being able to read the sequence of three billion chemical letters in DNA. Now, rather than read that, this new project, which I believe is associated with George Church, is proposing that we would write it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it sounds, like I said earlier, it sounds like an X-Files conspiracy, right? We'll, we'll like breed perfect soldiers or maybe we'll copy people, right? We'll make clones of people or something like that. So there's all sorts of spooky ramifications. Uh, but Church, like I said earlier, he wants to clarify, this isn't about creating people. He's not a mad scientist. He's just talking about creating a couple cells here. And it would be applied to all kinds of genomes, plants, animals, and microbes. So he's not, you know, uh, th- this is when, when uh, I read about how there were some people in the community who were like, oh, we don't want to have anything to do with that. Therefore, we're not going to attend his event where he's talking about this. Uh, you know, it's unethical. And he was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, like, calm down. Uh, this is, this is all I'm proposing. Here's the thing. We're already doing this with yeast, as we yeah. talked about earlier. Remember? So, you know, we add numerous genes to yeast. It turns it into a production process that generates whatever flavorings, fragrances like the rose oil, insulin, all these things. Also, keep in mind, synthesizing DNA is not easy. We can currently only make strands with 200 base pairs. In comparison, a single gene is hundreds to thousands of base pairs long. And if we were going to synth- synthesize those, what you have to end up doing, like, like for a project, like maybe the human genome thing, you have to splice together multiples of the 200 unit segments. So we're not there yet. You know, I mean, it's like 
like literally Frankensteining, like sewing together all these yeah. base pairs to make it work. But there's breakthroughs coming, like like Venter and the, and the stuff that he was doing. Uh, and he copied an existing genome that was 500,000 base pairs long. He didn't create a new one. Yeast alone has 12 million base pairs, and the human genome is 200 times larger than that. So, I mean, we're talking about, like, just a prohibitively large amount of work until we get past that. Not uh, insurmountable by any means. No, but, I mean, it could yeah. be done, sure, but it's, you know, it's not as easy as I think some of the reports like to make it out to be. Right. Well, we're not going to go from tinkering with yeast to making super mutants in the blink of an eye. Yeah, yeah. exactly. All right. On that note, on the super mutant note, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to get into not only yeast, but yeast 2.0. All right, we're back. So we talked about uh, creating synthetic bacteria. Yeah, and the, the importance of yeast to this whole process. Now, this isn't your your father's yeast. No. This is yeast 2.0. Yeah, that's the current uh, goal, kind of shared goals of various uh, labs that are working on the yeast 2.0 project. And there's a website for yeast 2.0. You can uh, look it up, and we'll try to link to it on the landing page for this episode. But uh, essentially, we're talking about continuing to alter parts of the yeast, to to genetically engineer the yeast until it becomes something completely new. Mm. So it's a gradual thing. Like, we're going to keep tweaking that paragraph in Moby Dick until it is a completely new paragraph. Yeah. Um, and it's important... It's an important step as well, not only because, you know, yeast is, a, is a already become such a useful um, organism for our synthetic bi- biological needs, but it's also uh, a eukaryote. It's more complex. It's more like us. Higher cells. We're talking 12 million base pairs of DNA here. And then yeast also have sex. So they are, uh, the, you know, again, it's, it's a more a more human model for us to work with. And it's also, I would say, like... Most people don't have ethical concerns about experimenting on yeast that they would like maybe, I don't know, like experimenting on ferrets or something like that. Right. right. Uh, actually, at the, the talk that I attended, Krolwich tried to sort of uh, he, he he was really poking a lot of sticks at him, trying to, you know, get him to to, um, you know, to open up. And yeah. uh, so he's asking him about, like, do you feel do you feel weird? Do you feel uh, immoral when you tinker with the yeast? Yeah. And, and everyone was like, no, not, not at all. <laughs> The yeast is uh, it, it is not a, a higher organism. It is not like even messing with a, a lab rat right, or anything. Yeah, yeah. Maybe they're using like their grandmother's sourdough starter or something that's in the fridge. Uh, yes, yeah, that's right. Some people are very uh, <laughs> attached to their um, their yeast in that regard. Now, in all of these discussions, one of the things that always comes up is sort of the Jurassic Park model, right? Yeah. Or just sort of your basic mad science. Because what always happens, you life create always in, finds a way. Yeah, you create something in the lab, and then. It goes wrong. It goes wrong. It breaks out of the lab. It starts yeah. rampaging through the city. So especially when you read reports about tinkered E. coli, and certainly people have all of these negative ideas in their head about what E. e. coli are. Yeah, you combine the words E. coli and GMO in a headline, mm-hmm. and people are going to freak out. Yeah, people grow concerned. So it's important to note that there are a number of, uh, of safety factors involved here. One of the, the biggest is that most lab organisms utilized in these experiments are pretty fragile, and they're going to be eaten or they're going to just going to die if they venture into the outside world. But for that very reason, that fragility, labs have to safeguard their experiments against viral infections in the lab, 
lest a virus um, wipe out operations inside your lab that can essentially put you out of operation for a couple of years even. Yeah. And here's some uh, more things to consider about this, right? So who's doing this? Corporations. For the most part, it's uh, companies that are developing these new bacteria. Why? So they can produce products like rose oil or insulin or whatever, right? Yeah. And sell it on the market. Uh, anyone who wants to use those, they have to pay a fee, right? It's sort of like uh, if you want to download an MP3 file of a song, but if you play that song while you're butchering your family with an axe or something, you, the musicians who wrote the song aren't responsible, right? Like, just because they created the song, it's not their fault that you did that. So, <laughs> subsequently, the law actually says these corporations are not responsible uh, if something bad happens while you're using the organism. Okay. So, that's important to keep in mind as well. It's so another, like... Uh, bend on the Jurassic Park thing, right? Okay. Like if the, uh, if those eggs get out of that Jurassic World lab, man, those altered, those altered eggs and there's some Tyrannosaur rampaging around LA, hey, it's not their fault. Alright, so you're using E. coli in the lab. Yeah. You have a lot of, uh, a lot of money invested in this project, whatever you're tinkering with the E. coli to do. Mm-hmm. The last thing you want is a virus to wipe out that that E. coli that you're working on in the mm-hmm. lab environment. So you're already, you know, what do you do? So you're already engineering the genetics. You're already tinkering with the genetics of the E. coli. Why don't you just go ahead and make that E. coli virus resistant? Yeah. And that indeed is exactly what we're doing. Yeah. Uh, now, a refresher on E. coli. So we hear E. coli and we all go, ah, yeah. right? But... Uh, let's just do like a basic breakdown here. E. coli is a bacterium and it most naturally occurs in strains that are totally harmless. It breeds well in lab conditions, which is why it's used in experiments in biosynthesis. There's a lot of different strains of it. Only a few of them are harmful. Some even live inside the human body and they keep the other harmful bacteria in our bodies under control. So, they even help manufacture vitamin K in our body. I feel like, I feel like E. coli is like the pit bulls of the bacteria world. Like, yeah. they've got, you hear that, you hear that word and you go, oh, that's bad. But like, they do good things and they're like, they're, they're kind of like gentle at heart, E. coli. <laughs> yeah. They tend to only splash the front page of yeah. the newspaper or the top of the website though when they're involved in something but it, terrible. Yeah, exactly, right? Like of course, like if you get E. coli poisoning, it's a totally different matter. Now, it can be engineered to produce acrylic acid. In fact, this is what we use in a lot of our paints and adhesive is acrylic acid produced from E. coli. That's generating 75% less carbon dioxide emissions than when we make it from petroleum. So that's an interesting thing. Like you get into the ethics of it, like, oh, you shouldn't be tinkering around with E. coli. What if it gets out of the lab and whatever, <laughs> right? But at the same time, like we're uh, protecting the environment by using this E. coli to make acrylic paints. Indeed, there's an environmental benefit here. Yeah, and you can use it to manufacture a lot more than just paint. You can do uh, biofuels with it, hemoglobin, and possibly you can even use it as a delivery mechanism for anti-cancer drugs. And as we already mentioned, genetically engineered E. coli is used to make human insulin, so that's important too, right? That saves lives. It's just as safe as the animal-derived insulin, and it's cheaper to make. But again, people, you know, they're not comfortable with the whole playing God aspect of the science. It freaks them out a little bit. So there's an inclination toward that sci-fi horror story setup. Is it going to get out of the lab? What will it do to our environment? So that's why they put in safety switches into this when they're genetically engineering them. 
And this is very Jurassic Park as well, right? Like, yeah. like we put the safety switch in there. They can't breed, but wait a minute. They're breeding, right? Like that kind of thing. But they do, uh, they, they make it so that this E. coli can't survive outside of the lab without a particular nutrient. That's right. Uh, the, the example I like to use in thinking of this is Snake Plissken from uh, Escape from New York. Yeah, nice. Yeah, so, so Snake is a dangerous dude and you want to use him, uh, but you don't, you're about to let him out, let him loose in the world. You need him to report back. You need him to do his job. Yeah. So they uh, they put a little poison capsule in him. So mm-hmm. he so he's uh, uh, so he's compromised. He has to come back if he wants that cure. So that yeah, it's a similar thing here. They essentially um, uh, make uh, the uh, E. coli uh, addicted to a specific lab chemical, uh, and this it's known as uh, BIPA, B-I-P-A. It's amino. It's an amino acid. Okay. And it's not going to find its fix out in the world. If it goes out there and it doesn't come back, it's going to die. Yeah. And then additionally here, um, again, we keep coming back to Frankenstein, and I'm sure scientists hate it. They put, <laughs> Yeah, Mary Shelley hangs over them like a specter. Yeah, yeah, cast a long shadow. But it's uh, um, but just as Victor Frankenstein was horrified at the possibility of his creation reproducing, uh, this may not be a problem for us. Uh, it, Dr. Uh, Church has said that because uh, these um, synthetic organisms have a unique genetic code, mm-hmm. quote, it's almost a new kingdom of life that would have trouble exchanging genetic material with any other life form. Yeah. So, okay, another sci-fi uh, or fantasy metaphor here then. It's a uh, Dr. Murrow's Island, right? Oh, yeah? Like, that's one of the big problems, I think, is uh, if I remember correctly from the... It's been a while, but that horrible movie with Marlon Brando in it, <laughs> I think that they had breeding issues. Like, he purposely created these things so that they couldn't breed uh, yeah. without his permission. Well, and that's, yeah, that seems to be kind of what's happening here. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, in this talk, uh, Drew uh, Indy had his own, uh, um, example. He, he described it as more of a new language. And without a translator, the, the two kingdoms here can never converge. Um, which, uh, which again kind of gets back into some of our linguistic examples we were making earlier. So I think like it's fair to say that, you know, at least the scientists that we're talking about here are taking the steps necessary to make sure that this is a safe process. Seems like they're doing it for altruistic reasons because a lot of these processes, whatever, they're either cheaper than regular processes or they're better for the environment, so on, right? It's not yeah. like we're just doing this to do it. Yeah. Now, that being said, certainly oversight is important. Yeah. Continued. Um, the, 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 I think it's it's essential and it's great that, that everyone involved here, they seem to be asking these questions. They're having meetings about it. They're, the, the press is involved and and are able to, to look over their shoulders to a, a limited extent. And, and see what's going on and keep everyone in the conversation as long as the conversation yeah. keeps going. Yeah. And there's a certain amount of openness. Have some transparency yeah, to it. Don't have can... the cigarette smoking man in charge of things. Yeah. <laughs> um, that, all that being said, you know, and, and if the trajectory remains pure, if you will, we're looking at some really amazing possible future advancements. Um, and a few of these uh, specifically were mentioned in the, uh, the talk I attended. Uh, for instance, probiotic yeast that functions as a diagnosis platform. Mm. So that being kind of like a medical technology application. Yeah. Engineered microbes that alter body odor on demand. <laughs> that could be pretty exciting. Yeah. Um, especially, I, I'm not sure how that would exactly work. Maybe you have some sort of interface. I don't know. Yeah. And you can... You know, so if you're threatened, there's you can an, skunk it up. There's an app for that. You, <laughs> you, you hit the button on your app, it makes you smells like ro- smell like roses. You hit another button, it makes you smell like a skunk. 
Um, another one, the ability to manage mood and health via mood and health affecting bacteria. Yeah. This one really um, made me think because we've had so many, I think we've even discussed on the show here, like the, how much more we're learning about the, the, the role that our, our gut bacteria plays in our mental health. Yeah. And, yeah. and yeah, just how we think, how our mood rolls out. And so if we're able to, just the tinkering with bacteria level, if we could, t- if we can tinker with our gut bacteria, uh, genetically in a way that benefits the greater expression of the organism, uh, I mean, that's pretty mind blowing. You know, I just realized where this totally ties back to the cyborg episode that we did. We are yeah. absolutely talking about making cyborgs, just genetically modified ones. In addition to that, we're also talking about the possibility of making cell lines uh, to resist cancer, to serve additional industrial purposes as well. Humanized animals for organs and tissue. That's one that probably um, sets some people's alarms off. Yeah, so I'm guessing that this is sort of like you take a fox and you set it up so that it grows human lungs and you can take the lungs out of the fox or something like that. Yeah, that that sort of thing. Or, you know, pigs or other livestock organisms. Or even like, um, do you remember that terrible movie, The Island, with Scarlett Johansson and Ewan McGregor? I've never seen it. I've seen some of the films that was um, based on, such as Part the clonus are okay yeah so you get the premise mm-hmm. right that they like they basically grow clones of you solely so that in case you know one of your organs breaks down they just yank it out of the clone of you yeah but the you know the problem is that the clones are sentient human beings that are walking around and have identities of their own yeah but the, the cool thing about this is you could essentially have the same scenario but without the weirdness of and the horror of having human clones yeah. you could grow you know human donor hearts in yeah. a pig yeah I mean, I like the idea. I I, I like the idea of, of individuals who need organs uh, having the ability to get them without uh, mm-hmm. having to, you know, you know, wait out their their lives on a list. Somewhere. What if we grew human organs in a pig and then ate that pig? Hmm. Now you're getting into that gray area. Yeah, yeah. And I'm the vegetarian on the show, but like, <laughs> hmm. I wonder what like a human heart bacon tastes like. What? <laughs> what if it was humanized with your this is some real Hannibal your stuff. genetics, your DNA? Yeah. So essentially, oh, you're, you're eating, eating your, your own, own heart, heart yeah. out of a pig. Yeah, hmm. yeah. Hannibal would have a, he a would. play he date would. with this. <laughs> and then finally, this is one that Church specifically brought up in the talk: HIV resistance, quote, for the entire population. Now that sounds like a good thing. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's. I think it's difficult to argue with that that level of um, of power essentially right. yeah um, yeah the ability to to wipe out uh, human diseases in in some cases mm-hmm. but of course this all brings us down to some of the bigger questions like what happens if we create a, a truly synthetic human um, you know even though we've been making synthetic genomes for for a decade we've been using uh, mammal cells for manufacturing of uh, what if we made a synthetic being and not just a cell mm-hmm. Um Certainly, there are a number of lingering concerns there. Would you have, would you have two kinds of humans in the in the way that we're we're essentially talking about two kingdoms of life? Yeah, knowing the tendencies of the human race, I suspect that we would somehow create the uh, turn the synthetics into some kind of minority, right? Yeah, or would we would we be the minority? Maybe the, the maybe the we would, would be yeah, the, uh, yeah, maybe the they'd be the upper class. Yeah, but I mean, these are not. Im- these are not ridiculous questions to ask as we're looking at, when we look at where we are with the science now and envision where it's taking us in the future. Yeah. yeah. And as I believe it was uh, Drew Indy brought up in this, 
you know, we're already engaging in levels of this. So you may have, you know, you're having the genetics of an unborn child screened. Yeah. To see if, uh, you know, what the, what the prognosis is for that child. And you have to make decisions based on that. Um, then what the next logical step is tinkering with that genetics. We actually, um, talked about that uh, mm-hmm. as a scenario in our cyborg episode in a future listener mail episode. I want to read this. One of our listeners wrote in about how he had a similar experience with his son's birth and they did have to do, I don't think it was genetic tinkering, but they mm-hmm. had to do sort of p- a pre-birth surgery on his son. Yeah. So, I mean, we're already at the point where we're, you know, we're screening and then, and then the next step is, uh, is actually tinkering with it a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then from there, do we, What's what is the what's wrong then with writing uh, yeah. the code, tinkering yeah. with it even more if we're talking about, uh, you know, the best possible expression of human life? Yeah. What if we get into a scenario where. All right. So here, l- let's pitch some like potential like uh, scenarios. And, and I don't think that you and I are going to have the answers to these, but let, yeah. me, let me throw one out here. Let's say uh, there's a disease and it's killing off the whole human race. It's like a black plague. Okay. All over again. You mean like, like sort of like selfie sticks? I feel like yeah, like those. those. <laughs> yeah. And we make the only the only way to ensure that the human race survives is to make synthetic humans that are resistant to that. Mm-hmm. We're not naturally resistant to this disease, but the synthetic ones would be. Do we do it? Are they still human beings? If they're the only ones left, is that the human race? Yeah, I would think so. I mean, we've already. It's not like humans are existing in a natural state anymore anyway i mean we've we've yeah. already we, we we've already altered our evolutionary journey you know so this is just another way to technologically augment it and and ultimately in this scenario we'd be talking about the long-term survival of the human race yeah. so go for it push go on that i would say and then you know like a one of one of the things that we looked at was sort of like a teaching resource for uh genetic engineering teachers sort of the basics mm-hmm. uh to ask their students to think about the ethics of it and they say things like would you feed genetically modified organisms to your dog not alive <laughs> right. Yeah. That's a, for some reason, that's the. Uh, that's what you think immediately is like. Mind. There's a genetically modified rabbit. Oh. <laughs> no, I think they mean like dog food or oh. something like that. Yeah. Uh, or like, uh, is it? Uh, or, or, or how about this? Like, what happens if those get out into the environment? Like, again, mm-hmm. like use the the do- dog food analogy. There's some kind of dog food. It's genetically modified. Uh, what happens if that dog food gets out into the world and is eaten by, I don't know, like, a uh, an animal in your backyard or something like that, you know, what does that do? Yeah. I mean, we've, we've discussed some of the safeguards in place here, but certainly we can look to our history with just the spread of, of invasive organisms around the world and the, the harm the, there. And, yeah. you know, we can't help but just extrapolate what some of the potential problems could be with genetically modified yeah. organisms. And the one the one that scares me the most. This is the this is the one that I actually have a problem with. I'm less concerned about or at least for right now about the 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 stuff getting out of the laboratory or the you know the the effects of the food that we're eating, things like that. What I'm more worried about is who should own these. Yeah. And how far does the responsibility that they have as owners of these go in a, in a legal and ethical sense, right? And again, comes back to Blade Runner, right? Like there's that corporation that's made the the replicants. Like what's their responsibility? Hmm. 
Indeed. In that movie, apparently it's to hire Harrison Ford to hunt them down. Yeah. But (laughs) I don't know. I mean, like uh, that, that's like the, the furthest end of it, right? When you, you've like written the genome to create more than human beings. But like when it comes to, so uh, let's take the Jurassic Park example, right? Like Mm -hmm. you've genetically engineered a dinosaur. You think that you've uh, set it up so that the dinosaur can't leave Jurassic Park because uh, it has to get that particular amino acid, right? But then somehow or another through the biology of these dinosaurs, life finds a way. They're able to breed. They're able to get out of the park. Are, who's responsible for that? Who goes and catches the dinosaur? Well, the obvious answer here is that a you need a wily mercenary who ah. fails, and then a scientist who pulls it off. So. Yeah, and one person who says, "Clever girl." Yeah, yeah, you got to have it. Um, I, I do want to close with with a more optimistic spin on all this, and this is one that uh, that, that drew Indy throughout there in the talk. You know, there's a tendency to to think about, especially the industrial applications here, and think of it as industrializing biology. And I think that's accurate to a certain extent. Yeah. You know, you're taking an organism and making it do the thing you want uh, for your benefit, which is also something that humans have done throughout history, just through agriculture. Uh, but uh, it's also there's also a big case to be made for biologizing industry. Yeah. So in, a, in, and in doing so, just across the board, helping to create a more sustainable world, mm-hmm. you know, by... By, by by making your manufacturing and your industrialization more in keeping with natural processes, and and not necessarily this you know grungy factory on the hill that is yeah. polluting the environment around it. That's the difference between making paint with petroleum versus making paint with E. coli. Yeah. So anyway, all of this is food for thought. Yeah. You know, we don't have any uh, answers about the the long term uh, possibilities here. Or even some of the short-term concerns. But in this episode, we, we wanted to demystify the process a little bit, as well as discuss some of the, uh, the, the really big and, you know, ultimately mind-blowing ideas and possibilities involved. Yeah. So, uh, if you out there, obviously, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining already the, the emails coming in or the tweets or the <laughs> Facebook messages about GMOs and what we did or did not cover. But, you know, let us know what you think. Let us know what, uh, we might cover in the future. Uh, and there's lots of ways to do that, right? I, I mean, I mentioned some of them, but we've got the social media platforms galore, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram. We're on all of those as Blow the Mind. That's right, and you can also check us out at StuffToBlowYourMind.com, of course. And, hey, wherever you listen to us, uh, be it a Spotify, iTunes, Wherever, uh, if there's a way to rate us, give us a good rating. If there's a way yeah. to review us, give us a good review. That is a wonderful way to support this podcast uh, without spending any money. Especially because we're relatively new to Google Play and Spotify. So yeah. it would be great if we could get more listeners on those platforms. So one last thing. If you want to write us directly, send that mail to blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.